With more than 60 episodes in the game, KP and PR are still dropping gems. Secrets continues to bring you the hot fire that you have grown to expect. Listeners describe Secrets as the ultimate receipt for motivating the underrepresented employee to be bold in achieving their career aspirations in corporate America. And Season 4 will definitely not disappoint as they deliver secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to get your market value. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, put in that work to reach the top of corporate America. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance in your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season four. Hey everybody, welcome to Secrets Today. Ricky, what's going on my brother? KP, I know we just finished highlighting some phenomenal leaders doing mental health awareness month and I was extremely impressed with their collective openness, Mm -hmm. you know, to share how they have had to battle with stigmas in corporate America, the communities and their families and friends. Like it was just a lot that they had to deal with. And knowing my own struggles, you know, with depression in the past, I'm feeling like the community, as a matter of fact, our secrets, you know, Mm -hmm. community is making these conversations normal and safe to go deeper. Like I could tell you in the past, I hadn't really been comfortable talking to people mm-hmm. about some of the stuff that was going on with me. I mean, we talk about that external static, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? And this mm-hmm. is one of those things where it's like, you just try to keep it to yourself and just perform. Yeah. People say, hey, what's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I'm good. I'm <laughs> exactly. Good. It's all good. And I agree with you about normalizing these conversations and making it safe for us to speak about all, all these things, mm-hmm. especially with our own social bubbles. And what comes to mind for me is the number of leaders within our secrets village who serve as models for perseverance Mm -hmm. when it comes to dealing with external static that you just talked about, right? And we've talked about in many of our seasons and other episodes. And even for the, even a number of BIPOC and women leaders who have had to overcome biases and microaggressions when trying to excel or extend to the next level in their careers, this stuff is real. Yeah. And actually, and I think it even, it goes past micro. It gets the macro. Get the macro. You know, aggressions there. and all of this stuff can just literally push you to the breaking point, put you to the edge. Yeah, yeah. I know I, I know. we joke around and stuff with some of the music, but I mean, we talk about this stuff in some of these songs when they talk mm-hmm. about, don't push, push me because I'm close to the edge. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm right. trying not to lose my head. Like, mm-hmm. this is exactly what we're talking about. But look, KP, we are so very blessed to have with us today a very important guest and voice in the fight for advancing racial equity with respect to a number of issues that include, and this is just a few, Mm -hmm. education, housing, generational wealth that we speak about all Mm -hmm. the time, disparities in healthcare. This sister's influence runs so deep as she hosts a weekly talk show on KMOJ FM radio in Minnesota. She also hosts a podcast called The More We Know Community Show. She holds several prominent seats in the nonprofit and educational space with just a few here to name the Johnson STEM Activity Center, the Board of Regents for Augsburg University, the advisory board for the Wallace H. Coulter Department of Biomedical Engineering at Emory University in Georgia Tech, bio chemical engineering. I man. heard that. This shit's serious. Okay. That's right. That's okay. Right. You can barely get it out your yeah, mouth. Exactly. So I'm like, man, let me write that down. <laughs> let me write that down. This magnificent sister queen, man, Jesus. really is a purple unicorn. I know we talk about this stuff all the time, but this really is a purple unicorn as she has an undergraduate degree in pharmacology and a PhD in neurophysiology. While serving her community in this capacity, she has also spent more than 20 years in the med tech space in functional roles like sales, marketing, philanthropy, and also health equity. But the last great accomplishment, and I was saving it for last, okay? She also had the time to write a book entitled Turning the Tide, where she speaks extensively about her path towards emotional health. So with no further ado, I know I put a lot on you this. Put a lot of I, put some, on I put some pressure on this one, <laughs> right? With no further ado, I bring to you all our sister, friend, and secret supporter from day one, Dr. Sylvia Bartley to the show. Welcome, <laughs> Sylvia. <laughs> you too are cracking me up. Thank you. <laughs> Guys, thank you very much for this opportunity, Keith and Ricky. 
I can't wait to dive into this conversation with you. I can tell it's going to be fun. It's always fun. <laughs> so welcome. And we're excited to have you with us today. Ricky and I have been strategizing and plotting to try to get you on our podcast ever since the three of us were on a, on a panel together when we were speaking to an employee research group in the UK. So I know we're going to have a lot of fun and it's going to be full of hot fire. So get ready, Secrets. And in today's episode, we'll talk with Sylvia about her career path and some of the challenges and triumphs she faced while climbing to the top. We'll also discuss coping with external static in her life, as well as the inspirations for her book, Turning the Tide. We'll provide some receipts on dealing with the various disparities in the BIPOC community. And today we're going to focus on the UK, right? Mm -hmm. And disparities that are there in the BIPOC community and how those unlevel playing fields continue to have negative impacts on general well-being. And we'll close out with secrets from Sylvia on how to find your purpose while becoming an advocate and a voice for change. Mm, mm, mm. So it's a little pressure right here, but we know Silva, Sylvia is going to be able to handle it. Oh, okay. We know she's going to be able to handle it. Okay. So look, Dr. Sylvia Bartley, my sister, we've known each other for a long time, but I generally like to start our interviews by giving our secrets listeners some insight on who they're talking to, you know, and why we believe you to be a purple unicorn, right? Now, I think, I know you're going to probably try to take something off of it, but we're going to make sure that, that this is smoking by the time we're done here. Can you please just take a moment to bring our listeners up to speed on who you are, what is your upbringing, your educational background, and the story behind your actual career journey? Yeah, thank you, Ricky. And I got to say, normally the tables are turned I'm the one asking all the questions. And so I feel a little bit strange in, in this hot seat. So I will do my best to meet your expectations, Ricky and Keith. And funny I use that word expectations, because when I think about my background and growing up, that was a word that was really hanging over my head in my early years and throughout my career. Expectations. You know, no room for messing up, no room for failure, no room for errors. Just got to get it right and got to keep trying and get on with it, as my mother would say. So I was born and bred in the UK to two parents who came from the Caribbean. My father came across from Jamaica in the Windrush era. For those of you who are not familiar, Caribbean being an ex-colony of Great Britain, they did a recruitment drive to get people into the UK after World War I, and they had lots of Caribbeans in the Royal Air Force. They wanted to bring them back and get them to do service jobs in the UK. So big recruitment drive. And the Windrush was a boat that came across with lots of Jamaicans in very smart suits, hats, shiny shoes, coming to the land of milk and honey. And so they arrive in the UK and of course, they're met with no dogs, no blacks, no Irish kind of theme when they were looking for service work. Uh, my mother also came along from St. Lucia. She was 19 years of age and she knew nobody. And she came completely by herself to this big country because they also did a recruitment drive in St. Lucia, an ex-colony of Great Britain. And they met in East London and they built a family together. I say all of that because my parents started with nothing. They literally, my father was working in a bakery. My mother was working wherever she could. They didn't like her. They were asking her to do things that she didn't want to do. So she had to leave because she was a black female. It was a hard struggle. They had four kids. My brother passed away when he was 15 months years of age. They kind of lived in Brixton in rental accommodation. And, you know, people were just not nice to them, white people and fellow Jamaicans who had money to buy property and rent out to people because they knew there was a need. So I grew up in a household where my parents worked exceptionally hard. And because of the way they were treated in rental, they did all they could to buy a property. And that meant, you know, we had no furniture. Me and my two sisters, we slept on a little camp bed. My father worked in a post office, so he worked at nighttime in a sorting office. And so my mom would sleep on a little ottoman and my, me and my two sisters would sleep on a camp bed. And that's all we had. And they would just work exceptionally hard. And over time, furniture showed up in the house and all that good stuff. Now, would I say that we were poor? That never crossed my mind. I didn't know what that meant. We had a roof over our heads. My mum made sure we always had food in our bellies. And the way she managed like our clothing situation was she made all of our clothes. With the exception of our underwear, my mum just got a little machine, material, and she literally made all of our clothes. So I say that because it was an upbringing of just 
hard work and perseverance and getting on with it. And again, there was no room for failure. So the expectation of us, me and my two sisters, were go to school, get good grades and get a good job. That was it. Do your homework. Don't do anything else. Don't go out. Don't play. Don't socialize. Just put your head down and work really hard. That was the ethic. And my father being a, I don't know if it's because he was a Jamaican or how he grew up, but he ruled with an iron fist. It was just very strict. And we had a cook, we had a clean, had to do all of those things from a very young age. And God help us if the dinner wasn't hot or the place wasn't clean enough. We had to do it again until it met their satisfaction. So that expectation, yeah, that's a theme for me, I think, when I think about my early years. Then going to school, went to a Catholic school. My mom a devout Catholic, my father a Methodist, if you marry a Catholic, You've got to bring your kids up in the Catholic faith. And that was reiterated in the school, in a predominantly white Irish Catholic school that provided excellent education, but it was ruling with an iron fist. Speak when you're spoken to, don't think, rope, learn, and get good grades. But the good thing about that school was they had high expectations of me. Retrospectively, that was really important as a Black girl. That I think there's probably one to one and a half to two percent of black people in the school, if not less, in the whole school. That wasn't an issue. Race wasn't an issue. I just had to work hard and, you know, get my grades and get on with people. I was very shy when I was growing up. And so my teachers had expectations of me and we were streamed in school. And the streaming of A stream, B stream and C stream based on your academic ability. And they immediately put me in the A stream when I went into like elementary high school. And I felt I didn't belong there because I had to work really hard to be at the bottom of the A street. <laughs> and people would be surprised by that. That academia did not come easy to me. I had to work really hard to be at the bottom. And I tried and I would stay up till two in the morning. I'll be studying. I'll do a test and I would get the lowest grade. And it got to the point where I just felt so different and just like stupid and dumb. And nobody made me feel like that in the class. I just felt like that for myself. And I went up to my teacher and I said, Mrs. Bannerman, I remember clearly, and everyone else is white, right? And Mrs. Bannerman, I am not doing so well in this class. I'm not doing so well in this stream. Can you please put me down to the B stream, please? (laughs) And she said, no. I said, please, I'm not doing so well. And she said, no, you just need to apply yourself differently and I'm going to help you. And she did. That for me was a really important lesson because I wanted to give up and she believed in me. She saw something in me that I didn't see. She said it's about application and not about knowledge. And she taught me how to apply myself differently. From then onwards, my grades went up. And that's really important because it, there was two Black people in my class, me and Clive. And it would have been easy for her to say, go down in the B stream or even the C stream. But she didn't. She just worked with me. And, and that was a great lesson. And just to reiterate, where I grew up in, in Croydon in England and this school that I went to, St. Mary's Catholic High School, even though there wasn't many black people in the school, I saw them sprinkled across the streams. There was two A-stream classes. I think there was two of us in each class. There were a couple of folks in the B-stream and a couple of folks in the street C-stream. I didn't see them all in the C-stream. It was a mixture. That, I think, is really important when I think about my academic achievements Because for me, it was never about race or racism. It was about how I had to apply myself. That was my experience. And so did okay in school. Uh, Got decent grades. I shined and science came easy to me. Got a job in a medical school in the heart of London, a Royal London School of Medicine and Dentistry. I worked in a physiology department as a research technician. And again, I'm in an environment where there was one other Black person and I am working with these white academics that came from Middle England. And that was another experience that was just building on my experience from home and and school, because they also had high expectations of me. And my professor, Professor Keaton, and not many people know this, he said to me, first degree in applied biology, specializing in psychopharmacology, and I got my PhD in neurophysiology, all while I was working full time and, and raising my kids. And that, again, was a a great learning experience because it was about working hard, didactic learning, working in that medical environment, doing being a technician, doing research, and then learning the kind of academic side of that and applying that while learning. I think that really helped to shape 
who I am and really helped me to understand how I learn. Because I wasn't a rope learner. I'm a didactic learner. I've got to do, and then I've got to understand what I'm doing, and then I'll get deep into the, the science behind that. And so I came out of there with a PhD in neurophysiology. I knew I wanted to work in the medical device industry, started off in sales and marketing, and just had to prove myself as a salesperson. And I worked for Biotronic, and I did very well selling wires and stent in the heart of London, and then went to work for Medtronic and been there for 20 years. So that kind of, I know I spent a lot of time in my early years, but I never talk about that. And I think it's that experience that really helped shape me to be resilient and a hard worker and an achiever in the corporate environment. I think it helped prepare me for that environment. Mm-hmm. No, thanks for sharing. And I think, you know, having that perspective, especially of that early childhood piece really gives you a sense because that really shapes and gets you on a path, either a good path or a bad path at the end of the day. But it's so impressive just listening to your story and all of the resilience that it took for you to be in all of those different environments. And let me even just say something. I mean, when you, we talk about, I know I joked around in the uh, intro, but when we talk about undergraduate degree in pharmacology and then a PhD in neurophysiology, I mean, Sylvia, that's like major, you know, there, right? So have you always been like when you were growing up? I mean, I know you were saying you were kind of shy a little bit, you know, that you had to work hard to be able to compete. Because, look, I can remember the same story, you know, in the, about the fourth or the fifth grade when I was in the accelerated or the gate classes. I was working hard to get those C's. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was working hard to get those B's. And Mrs. Aust sat me down and said, honey, you can do this. You know what I mean? Like she didn't necessarily treat me any differently than the other kids, but she invested, you know, in me. And she was the one that said, you need to go to college. You need to be able to do what if football or track doesn't work out for you. Like she was the one that really made me see things differently. So as we start talking about you and those two degrees, like those are, I mean, there's a lot of people who with less melanin in their skin who don't even go down that path, <laughs> you know? So Outside of you talking about your teacher, what, like, had you all, have you always been a STEM kid? Like what influenced you to maybe take on those two, you know, educational challenges? I was never a STEM kid. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was at school. I just needed to get good grades. That's all I knew. And being in a Catholic school and not wanting to be embarrassed with a C or a D, I just had to work really hard. And certain topics came easy to me. Religious education came really easy to me. And I easily got an A in religious education. Then secondly was chemistry and biology. And uh, believe it or not, it was those formulas and all that good stuff. I wouldn't say excelled, but I did better in those topics than I did in history, English, or even maths. You go with what you're good with, right? You go with the, the path of least resistance. So that's what I followed up on when I did that. So did I ever think I would get a degree, much less a PhD? Absolutely not because I was struggling really hard just to get my kind of in England, it was called the O-levels and and A-levels. In fact, I did a HNC, a higher national certificate instead of A-levels, which introduced me to a lot of science topics, immunology, biology, physiology, medical statistics. And I loved that. And I excelled at that. And that was part of the degree that I did when I was working in, in the medical school. Now, working in a medical school, I was thrown into a real academic research lab with wires and test tubes and boiling fluids. And I, and I loved that environment. I was the one that got all the experiments ready. I made all the carbon fiber electrodes. I made all the solutions. I prepared all the experiments. And then I helped with the teaching of medical students. And that's where I found my sweet spot. That practical teaching of medical students. I loved it. They loved me. I was young and uh, kind of like them. I knew my stuff. And I got very popular in that medical school, particularly with the medical students, and then with, with the academics. And I just found my sweet spot. But even then, I didn't think I could be like those academics because they had a different background to me completely. White, Middle England background, which is private education, spoke with a plum in their mouth, lived a very different kind of prestigious life. And I was the working girl from Croydon with my two kids. And at that time, I was a single parent with two kids. And I remember one of my supervisors saying to me on a regular, you know, Sylvia, you're you're so disadvantaged. You're black, you're female, you're a single parent, you've got two children. 
all everything is stacked against you. Just as a matter of fact, and drop it in a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I didn't recognize that. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Ding, 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 ding. You know, and no one, and the Sylvia that I know, I mean, it's almost like you probably shouldn't have done that. You know what I'm saying? He probably shouldn't have said that to you, right? Because that right there ended up fueling you differently. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I would look at him like perplexed. And this guy was so smart. He was one of the best academics in our department. All the students loved him because he was just, the way he taught, you could tell it was his passion. And so I really wanted to learn from him. So one day he would teach me stuff. That that would be great. And then the next day he would say, you know, if this was 50 years ago, the only reason you'd be allowed in this building is to clean the floors. God damn, really, man? You're like, come on. Yeah, that's one of those where like the bubble on the side of your head, the saying what you really wanted to say is like this mother, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know. I mean, you say it like, like we're having a conversation, then you'll just drop that in. But you're right. These things kind of fueled me secretly, right? Because I didn't respond. I didn't know how to respond. I didn't have the tools to respond because I was just trying to get through life. And when my another supervisor, he said, I want you to register for PhD. I turned around and said, no, who, me? Are you kidding me? I said, I can't do that. And I had to sit down and think about it. I didn't say no. I had to think about it. I didn't jump at it. And I remember a student came to see me and she was in tears and she's like, I've applied so many places. I really want to do a PhD in biochemistry. I haven't been successful. And I saw that as a sign to say, look, here are people that are kidding themselves to get the opportunity that has been offered to you on a silver plate and you are turning it down. So I went to the same guy for one, for one, I don't know why, the same guy that would drop these gems at me. And I said, look, you know, what's his name wants me to apply for a PhD? What do you think? And he sat and he looked at me like you two look at me. And he said, no, I don't think you should do that. Ugh. I said, why not? And he said, because I always want you to be my technician. Oh, oh wow. my God. Wow. Woo. So you know what I did? I went straight to the registry office. <laughs> <laughs> And signed up to do my PhD in neurophysiology. Ain't that crazy, though? And the story gets better. So I don't think he realized that he inspired me to do what he didn't want me to do. And so and racism wasn't even in my head at that point. I just thought, arsehole, right? (laughs) I just thought he was just an idiot. I registered and then the word got out in my department because I'm their technician. And there's also a class divide in England. There was the academics and there were the technicians. And the academics sat at that side of the cafeteria so to speak, and the technicians on the other side, and never the twain shall meet. That wasn't a racing, that was a class thing. And so when the word got out that I was, and I'm a technician, and that's unheard of for a technician to register for a PhD. Only one white guy before me did that. And he was special, right? As in well-liked and all this kind of stuff. And so when the word got out that I was doing a registering for a PhD, this white lady who was supposed to be my friend and colleague who was also registered to do a PhD. And she had she was in her third year doing it full-time. I was going to do mine part-time because I was working. We were in a cafeteria and she said, I just found out you're registered to do a PhD. She said, people like you, in front of everybody, like the cafeteria was full. And she said it loudly, it was a speech. She said, people like you don't do PhDs in neurophysiology. You just don't get a doctorate. She said, what do you know about neurophysiology? What do you know about this manosensory cortex? What do you know about this pathway? What do you know about that pathway? She said, you are a mockery to the education system. Ooh. What? <laughs> and I remember those words like it was yesterday. You are a mockery to the education system. And I just hang my head because I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. But inside of me, retrospectively, inside of me, my little spirit, my internal voice was like, yeah, don't you worry about her. My, my father's head and my mother's head, put your head down, work hard, and keep trying until you get it right. Wow. I mean, those situations, holy cow. And we talk a lot about being the only and being disrespected, you know, and especially, you know, Black women, you know, having to deal mm-hmm. with so much static. I mean, any one of those situations could have put you on a totally different path yeah. if you weren't resilient right or if you didn't have that grounding from your parents to just fight through it all right so it's just it's just wow (laughs) 
can I just add it? Because this is bringing back memories. It did fuel me. I put my head down. I worked hard. One guy believed in me. That's the guy who told me to, my professor, who told me to register. Everybody else didn't, but half of them didn't let me know that. So I put my head down and I worked really hard. And my professor was so hard on me. But I was used to that because I had that at home and I had that at, in my Catholic school. And I, but I, they were days were like, damn, why is he so hard on me? Because I couldn't put a foot wrong. I couldn't put a, couldn't get a letter wrong. I couldn't like get a data analysis. I just couldn't get anything wrong. Within my first three months, they have this big kind of competition where all the doctorate students, all the PhD students will submit a poster, scientific poster. And then they will stand there. There will be a quiz by all these professors of each of the departments. And then there'll be a winner. Big deal. 60 PhD graduates from the third year to the first year. I came second in the first, in my first go round. And the person that came first was a doctor who was a, uh, got a first degree from Oxford and was a medical doctor. And she was finishing up her PhD. I was three or four months in, I had enough experiments because I was doing it for my, and that was the, the premise for the professor. He's like, you're doing all the work for us anyway. You might as well get a PhD out of it. So I knew what I was doing. And so I came second the first year. And then the second year, I, I won the first prize. And that started to silence people. And then the good hearted people, they were the ones that started to give me opportunities that they would never give to technicians, but only academics. And people started to see me as an academic and they started to give me those opportunities. So I ended up giving a few lectures to students. And after that 13 years, I, I left in very high regard with all of the academics. And just to close this part of the story out, when I finally got my PhD, and that, that's a whole kind of like podcast within itself, but I did it. Normally it will take three hours. Sometimes it could take eight hours for your Viva Borsa, your, your live voice examination. It took 45 minutes for mine. My professor, again, was so hard on me. He made me rewrite this thing like 60,000 times. Yeah. 60,000 times. And I remember the, the time when I said, OK, this is it. I got it right. And he just redlined this thing. There was red everywhere. And I just looked at him and I knew I was just about to have a breakdown. And he said, no, I just want yours to be perfect. And then when I got to my uh, Viva, the guy looked at me and said, are you nervous? I said, absolutely. He said, you've got no need to be nervous. You passed. He said, this is a celebration of your work. We're going to just have a nice conversation. So it lasted for 45 minutes. And when I went back to my institution, they were all there in the conference room with champagne. All of the academics were there waiting for me, cheering, open arms. They were so proud that I got my, so proud that I got my PhD. So I've been there for 13 years. We were like a family, despite, you know, of course families have their little fights. They were so proud. And then there was a line and they all came up, all these like senior academics and said, congratulations, this is great. We told your professor that he was crazy to register you and that you would never do it. Like he lost it, like registering you, but you proved us all wrong and blah, blah, blah. So they, and they were just so open with telling me that they told my professor. And that's why my professor was so hard on me because they were all telling him, you, you, you're crazy registering her, putting your name to her and she's not gonna pass. He made sure I was beyond perfect. No corrections in my PhD, zero. Normally people have to go back and do all these corrections and then me submit it, zero corrections because that guy made sure it was beyond perfect. So Keith, you just yeah. called that what? Yeah, that's sponsorship. I mean, that that's a classic case of being sponsored, right? Yeah. At the highest level. He put his credibility on the line and then guided you all the way through the process. He made sure. sure. He made sure you weren't going to mess up your that's own right. credibility right. or his, that's you know, right. for that matter. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is a huge, huge story. And this is exactly why we wanted to be able to have you on to be able to talk about this, because around every single turn it's just not in the U.S. I mean, it's everywhere. You know, history shows over and over again when you're you have a little melanin in your skin or you're a female or whatever the case is, you got to just fight through all kinds of obstacles here. Right. And you're showing at the highest level, you know, where you weren't even set up from the get go. You know, when you think about how your parents came over and had to work, you know, odd jobs just to try to make things work, how you had to bust your tail from the very beginning just to get them C's, you know, just to get them B's, like all of that stuff, you were made, you know, for this. But I think there's something that can be said for when you got to work this hard, 
and people are constantly questioning you, there are points in time where you kind of start to question yourself, right? You start to have this imposter syndrome. Like you start to feel like, why me? Like, why am I being chosen for this? So you and I have had some candid offline discussions that we've spoken about our own mental health challenges, right? And some of the stuff that we've had to go through and how it impacted our journeys for self-discovery, you know, at the end of the day. Can you talk a little about your own journey? And while you're having all of these great accomplishments on paper that had that took you a lot of ass busting to get, you know, <laughs> there's also like a price to pay, you know, when we start talking about the mental, you know, side of this. So if you can maybe just start kind of talking about like your mental or spiritual, you know, journey here to find your purpose. I am so glad we're talking about this because you're right. When you look on, at people's resume on paper, you're thinking, oh my God, they're so this and that. And people think you show up like that, but that doesn't happen. That is years of work and years of kind of emotional support. And with me, in parallel to all of that stuff when I was growing up, there was depression. And and I believe I had depression as early as four or five years of age. And people can say, how do I know that? I really don't, but I don't remember much of my childhood growing up. But there's certain things I do remember, one being my brother passing away and looking at his body in an open casket and wondering where he went and wanting to go with him to have an open heart surgery. And my mom telling me after that, I didn't speak for a whole year because I was in so much pain. I didn't understand why I was in pain. And if I tie things together, I believe the heart surgery was a few months after my brother passed away. So can you imagine what my, you know, my poor mother and father were going through losing a 15 month old baby, then their four and a half year old having major heart surgery that was hardly done before in the UK, right? Major heart surgery. And that got me to retreat inwards and it was safer inside. And what I do remember is feeling like I never belonged, even though I never, and I didn't understand why I felt like I didn't belong. There was no rhyme or reason. I didn't have any bad experience in school or growing up. It was a strict household, but they weren't bad experiences. But I always felt like I was on the outside looking in and that I never fit into this world. And when I got older and I saw Roots on the TV. That was my introduction to slavery, believe it or not, because in my environment, that was never even talked about. And then I started to question and look into my heritage and my background and to disbelieve this is how I came into, that was my path to England through the Caribbean, through the slave trade. And I just couldn't believe that that would even be a reality because I was like, why would someone make up a story like this? And so that made me go internal even further and question a lot about myself and then thinking, oh, maybe I'm feeling so different is because I'm black and everybody else is white around me. But that really wasn't it. It was really looking back. It was the the depression that has followed me through my life. But I lived with it undiagnosed for 50 years. I know I had it when I was a baby, but I was diagnosed in 2017 when I wrote my book. And when I went through all this stuff in academic world. I haven't even touched on what I've gone through in the corporate world, 21 years in the corporate world. And you know, I've gone through some stuff as a black female in England, in Switzerland and in the United States. I mean, that experience has been exceptionally good, but also exceptionally challenging because every corner you turn, you are faced with racism, micro or macro. You're faced with misogyny. Right? You always have to prove yourself. And it seems to me the more accomplishments you have, the more they want to knock you down. And James Dallas told me this, Sylvia, they will attack your culture, your competency, and your capabilities. He said, you've always got to watch out. And he's so right because they will always want to drag you down. They don't want to say, in my perspective, I'm like, how can I be like that person? But for most people, it's like, how can I drag that person down so I don't look so bad? So all of those things where you have to navigate on a daily basis sometimes has an impact on your emotional health. That's has an impact on your emotional toll. And if you couple that with someone who has major, moderate, reoccurring depression, that is a challenge. And that challenge really peaked in kind of my 30s to 50s, where that depression really took over over my life. And it was a struggle every day to show up and to do what I 
I needed to do. And people would never think that I had depression because I'm functional. I'm a high functioning person that has depression, but it's like that dark, that's calm on the outside and underneath there's that kind of frantic peddling of the feet. That was a lot for me. And it, it took so much out of me. It was unbelievable, unbelievable. And even talking about it now, it just makes me get kind of emotional because it was tough and people just kept throwing crap at you and you had to perform and you had no time to be emotional and you're raising kids and, you know, you've got to deal with the work environment, the home environment and, and you can't fail and no one's, you put one foot wrong and they come down on you like a ton of bricks. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, and it's, and it's, as you talk about it, I'm thinking about all of the stuff that was going on, like, you know, and still continues to happen where it's like, you're dealing with the family stuff. You're dealing with some of these, you know, other things you're dealing with societal, you know, issues. Right. And then you come to work. And if you have a asshole boss, you know, or you're on a leadership team where people really don't want you there anyways, like, all of this stuff really just kind of is an extra layer, you know, on you. So there is no room, like you said, for you to backpedal or take a step back because that could be the last straw, you know, for you. That could be the trigger, you know, for you. So I absolutely get it. I absolutely get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally appreciate you being so vulnerable and sharing that. A lot of us deal with that on a day in and day out basis. And I really appreciate that piece where you're saying we're constantly getting challenged on our culture, our competency, our capability all day long. Yep. Yep. <laughs> all day long. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. So I just appreciate you sharing that. Just turn the switch gears just a little bit. I want to talk about your book, <laughs> Turning the Tide turning the tide. I think, you know, your story and the richness that you've already brought to the discussion probably says a lot about that title of the book and some of your journey and what inspired you to do that. But could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about what inspired you to write the book and what's the kind of the story behind the book? Yeah, thank you. I think the inspiration is the depression. And the inspiration is my depression, what I'm calling it now, and I didn't call it that early on, but the depression is the inspiration because it always asks me, it always forced me to go internal and ask, what is my path? What is my purpose? Why am I here? So this feeling that I never feel like I belong, the quite constant question is, why am I here? Then it's, what is my purpose? Why was I born to these parents? Why was I, did I grow up in Croydon? Why did I end up in this academic institution? Why do I have a PhD? Why am I in this scientific arena in neuroscience and brain surgeons, you know, in this company with this phenomenal therapy, a lot of whys. And you asked me the question, Mickey, did I ever see myself? No. Was I a STEM kid? No. So therefore, why? <laughs> why am I here? It's not as if it was a desire from early on. And so that question just led me to go internal, which led me to really try and understand more spiritually my purpose, why I was called here, and digging into my faith, not as a Catholic or a religious person, but spiritually, the wider plan. What is the plan that is greater than I? How can we do good in this world? Center to all of me is God, who, whatever you want to call that, the universe, God. But it's that source and that energy and that light and that power that really has a plan that is that is bigger than me and, and has put me on this path because I didn't put myself on this path. I'm, I was dragged along the path, kicking and screaming. Resilient, <laughs> resilient, like kicking and screaming. No, I don't want to do that. And when I am kicking and screaming and, and not wanting to follow the path, then I make bad decisions. Then I'm in a lot of pain. And every time I'm in a lot of pain, it's a sign that I'm not on path and purpose. But me being hard headed, as my mother would say, I had to be in a lot of pain brought to my knees in order for me to really understand what it is that I'm supposed to do. And all of that really brought me to writing a book because there's the spiritual side and then there's a the science side and then there's a the depression which when I was writing the book I was calling it all other sorts of things but not depression undiagnosed and when I started to write the book and it's very cathartic and piece things together I realized catalyst or the start was the death of my brother then the surgery then all of these experiences when I think about me always being internal 
and feeling sad and lonely and isolated in a room full of people. That is my kind of depression. And then, you know, just not literally not wanting to be here, suicide ideation, wanting to go to sleep and not wake up, lying to bed, willing myself not to wake up. Right. Those things were very prevalent in my life and still pops up once in a while, even today, you know, just had enough. So tired of working hard, so tired of, of trying. Yeah, whatever the lesson is, I've learned it. Let me get on with my next life. So sometimes I'm in that frame of mind, but all of that brought me to what do I do with all of this experience? And I'm all about helping others and helping my community. And I believe we, we have experiences because we need to help others. It's for the wider good. And so when I realize it's depression and not anything else, and tying the two together with this spirituality. And then what is the science behind it? Because there's this stigma still talking about depression, pull your socks up, it's the devil in you, you haven't got God enough. You know, just get up and get on with it. What, what do you have to feel sad about? You've got everything, right? And then as a recognizing I'm a queer female. So it's everything, right? I'm black, queer, I'm female, I'm a single parent. All of those stereotypes come into play. I started to say, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I managing? And that was the premise of the book to say, okay, here's my story. Here's the depression. Here's the spiritual piece. Here's the depression. But guess what? When I asked myself, what is the purpose of me doing my PhD in neurosensory cortex on this neurophysiology on the somatosensory cortex, particularly brain plasticity, movement disorders, depression, and how they intertwine and doing all of that research, realizing and recognizing that there's pathways associated with self-transcendence and spirituality, the meditation, the pathway, the structural changes, the um, chemical changes in the brain that comes with this mindfulness. For me, that was the gem, because for me, that's the intersectionality between depression, spirituality and neuroscience. And then I'm like, that's what I'm of all the areas in the brain I can spend 15 years studying, it's the prefrontal cortex, the somatocentric cortex, the basal ganglia, the areas associated with mood and depression and movement disorders and spirituality. And then how I can, with my little bit of knowledge, tie all three together and get it to make sense. And here's the thing, you know, in 2017, I published the book, and that was great because then I want to talk openly about depression. And I, I'm still getting emails on how it's helping people to open up because someone who's in corporate, you know, talk about those things. Hell, why not? We talk about diabetes. We talk about cancer. Let's talk about the, the depression that's with us every day in those corporate settings and what corporation is doing to make it worse. Right. So we need to talk about those things so people can have awareness. But I think more importantly for me, it really started my journey to healing. One, the acknowledgement that I had depression. Two, I got diagnosed in 2017. And she said, you've been treating yourself, self-treating yourself with mindfulness, exercise, and all that kind of practice. And then thirdly, forcing me to do something about it. I'm like, okay, now I have depression. The psychiatrist said so, even though I didn't believe her. But I need scientific proof because I'm a scientist. So off I went to the Amen Clinic, got some spec scans, and there I have my scientific proof of the areas in the brain, the gang are all lit up like a Christmas tree with overactivity and explains why I feel sad, lonely, isolated, suicide ideation, because that part of my brain is overactive. And my cerebellum, the functional area, is performing really well as it should be, hence I'm functional. So knowing that, now I'm on a very specific plan, tailor-made to my brain's activity, with my Amen Clinic psychiatrist, pure supplements, no medication, pure supplements, exercise, diet, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, treatment, all sorts of things that is making me better. And then me being a scientist a year later, I took another set of scans and I saw the before and after. I visually saw the improvement in my brain in those areas. Ricky, she is literally <laughs> dropping science. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, for real. And to think, and to think she almost didn't go this deep in her career. Uh, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Should have been cheating us all, man. Look, Sylvia, KP, and I, we just recently got our books. We've been speaking about your journey and how what we've read so far. And now this conversation will influence our intentionality to finding like this internal peace. What are two or three 
of your favorite moments from the book that you would like to share. Now, don't spill all the tea, okay? Don't don't give it all up because we want people to go out there and buy this book and help the sister out, right? So just give us like maybe two or three things that you'd like to have people look forward to, you know, if they get the book. Yeah, well, three things. So first of all, the introduction. Like I said, my father's from Jamaica. I never been until I in 2016. And it was really good going. I felt like I went home. My spirit said, what took you so long? And I sat on this little peninsula and I really wrote like three versions of the book and I didn't write the introduction. I sat on this peninsula and these waves came at me and my ancestors came at me. So I had this spiritual experience and I ran to my hotel room and wrote the introduction. And that was so real and raw because, and I wrote that last. And so that introduction was so meaningful to me because I felt the protection of my ancestors. I really felt the protection of my ancestors. Another piece that's meaningful was the time where I showed my ass, as somebody told me in the book, where the second piece is depression. And some wise man said to me, Sly Jones, I need to be vulnerable so people will know who they're talking to. And I didn't want to be vulnerable and I didn't want to share anything. But when I had a depressive episode, I thought, well, this is my vulnerability and this is what I need to share with people what it really feels like. So there's the depression piece raw unedited in the moment so that's second and then third I think for me it's the scientific and the convergence I love the science I love the fact that all of my knowledge pen to paper I could put all of this together and tell a story of how we can manage our emotional health through mindful practices and how that changes our brain and what that looks like historically when it comes to certain disorders like movement disorders, Huntington's career, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, Tourette's, to depression, anxiety, what the brain looks like, what it's doing, and the work we can do innocuously to change our brain so we can improve our emotional health. For me, that, that's the gem. Fourthly, I think, it's for me saying that my depression is a gift because it forced me to question it forces me to be humble. It forces me to be grounded and never take anything for granted, right? Never think that I've achieved anything, right? Not because I'm saying it, just because I don't, because of where I came from. And it, it just doesn't register that I'm, I'm an achiever. It, it's just registering that I'm just doing stuff and I'm not doing enough and I've got to do more. But more importantly, I've got to give back to my community because I want everyone to have the guy that sponsored me, I want everyone to have that person. Because it's about opportunity. It's not about intellect, it's about opportunity. So I talk a lot about giving back to my community and I see my depression as a gift because it drives me to do that. It helps me to feel like I'm giving value and I can use it to help my community just be the best community I can be. Mm-hmm. Girl, mm-hmm. Dr. Sylvia. Girl, like, I, I'm telling you, this has been like just phenomenal. And I know a lot of times when people hear us, you know, speak, they think that we're just kind of over exaggerating what happened or what took place. But this is an opportunity for us to like really take some time here and kind of dig into these receipts. Like we're yeah. not making this shit up, you know, no. so keep like talk to them. No, no. Today we'll share some receipts on dealing with various disparities in communities of color in the UK because we don't we haven't spent any time on that mm-hmm. but you'll find that there's a lot of similar experiences and we'll share receipts on how that that unlevel playing field continues to have negative impacts on general well-being so look so receipt number one people may think that bipoc people only have it hard in the u.s because right because again we're based in the u.s and and we're so ego yeah. you know tistical that we think everything right. starts everything here. revolves around us yeah That's exactly right. but we want to share Receipts about BIPOC British folk as the disparities in the UK are just as stark as they are here. According to statistics compiled by the Institute of Race Relations, BIPOC groups are disproportionately affected by health inequalities. Census data has shown, for example, that people from ethnic minority groups are far more likely than white British people to live in the most deprived 10% of neighborhoods in England alone. 
Pakistani and Bangladeshi people, for example, are, are over three times more likely than white British people to live in these deprived neighborhoods as well. And Black, African, and Caribbean people are more than twice as likely to live in these areas. Bangladeshis and Pakistanis, for instance, have much higher rates of heart disease compared to their white British counterparts. Black African and African Caribbean people have higher rates of hypertension compared to other ethnic groups. Further, BIPOC groups overall are six times more likely to develop diabetes compared to white British people. Does that shit sound ominously familiar, you know, to what's happening here in the U.S. and the Mm -hmm. States? That's right. But all of that external static at the end of the day is is creating some of these health uh, disparities. Worldwide. Worldwide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's all about those social determinants of health. So when people think about health disparities, they first go to lack of access. Well, guess what? In the U.K., we have a national health service where there is health service for everybody at the same level. And yet. Black women are dying four times at a rate higher than white women giving birth or childhood related illnesses today. So, you know, let's forget about access. Let's talk about those social determinants of health and medical racism that still exist. And that is preventing people of color getting the health care they deserve. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. And it's crazy. Receipt number two. The Institute for Race Relations also talks about mental health and how it impacts BIPOC communities as well. Government statistics show that Black, African, Caribbean, and Black British people in particular have higher rates of mental illness and are therefore more likely to encounter mental health services. Black women are the group most likely to have experienced a common mental disorder such as anxiety or depression, and Black men are the group that's most likely to have experienced a a psychotic disorder. And statistics show that Black men are 10 times more likely than white men to experience such a disorder. Yeah. I mean, we keep talking about don't push me because I'm close to the edge. That that tells you a lot right there. No matter, mm-hmm. you know, male or female, we're all, you mm-hmm. know, when it comes to BIPOC individuals faced with a lot. Yes. You know, faced with a lot faced in the U.S. Lot. and in the U.K. Mm-hmm. OK, look, receipt number three across the U.K., more people from black, Asian and other minority ethnic backgrounds are likely to be in poverty, i.e. have an income less than 60% of the average household income. That's quite a bit, okay? You know, than than white British people, of course. According to a study on health equity in England, 50% of all Bangladeshis and 40% of all Pakistanis were in the most deprived fifth of the population after meeting housing costs, compared with 20% of all white British people. The Social Metric Commission found that 46% of Black, African, and Caribbean people and 32% of those with a mixed ethnic heritage were in poverty compared with 19% of white British people. Within disabled groups, 40% of disabled ethnic minority adults compared with 23% of white British disabled adults lived in poverty. I mean, come on, man. This yeah. is the exposing, yes. you know, of the system. Of the system. You know, here. That's right. So there, again... This is systemic. Yep. There is something about the culture of Western Europe and the U.S. that's driving a lot of this. And our final receipt, we're going to talk about the coin now. Yep. That's why I got to go. White British households had an average income of 518 pounds per week. Black, African, British, and Caribbean had an average of 408 pounds per week. Bangladeshi households had an average of 365 pounds, and Pakistani households had an average of 334 pounds per week. So huge disparity, mm-hmm. again, on income that very similar to what we see here in the U.S. And ONS reported that while white British people had an average household wealth, which includes the property, the savings, the pension, had average household wealth of 590, pounds, 590,000 pounds. Indians had 493,800. Black and Caribbean people had 379,200. And it goes on and on and on until you get the Bangladeshi people who had an average net worth of 141,000 pounds. So huge, I mean, 5X, 3X, 2X, I mean, very similar numbers that what we see here in the U.S. And this gets to that whole thing around generational wealth Mm -hmm. and the ability to bust out of this. Yeah. These disparities, I mean, they run deep. So we're talking about how all of this stuff 
the disparity in having access or having literally things that you can create a foundation with, mm-hmm. it metastasizes in something else, yep. you know, whether it be health or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. this is it. This but is it. when you get to work, come in here and do what you're supposed to do. do yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't talk about this shit. Just come on here and get these TPS reports done. That's right. <laughs> the stats break my heart. Growing up in the UK, it makes sense. And I understand. I understand why. One other little fact. America is like you've got the direct descendants of enslaved Africans. And that is so raw here. We have that in the UK, but the history is not so obvious. And no one really talks about it. But England has a colony mindset. And that is very strong in England, that colonized mindset. And in 2015, the Bank of England paid its last check to descendants of enslaved African owners. 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 Oh, damn. We ain't, <laughs> ain't talking about reparations. We ain't talking about reparations. To the owners, 2015, which meant damn. that when I was working there, my taxes went to my ancestors' owners. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that just speaks to the mindset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The enslaver, the Woo. colonizer. Look, I mean, again, this is just so, so rich here, right? We're talking about the receipts. Like well, there is a reason, a reason why we have secrets, you know, here. Mm-hmm. There is an absolute reason why we have it, you know. And what we want to try to navigate, you know, into now is some of those secrets. Those okay. Secrets. We want to work on ways to empower you know, our community with tools on how to deal with some of these things, right? So because we have the privilege of having the very brilliant Dr. Sylvia Bartley on the show with us today, we're going to ask her to provide our secrets for you today and how to find your purpose while becoming an advocate and a voice for change. Mm -hmm. So Sylvia, what advice do you have for our Secrets Village who may be dealing with similar challenges that you've described in your journey in terms of becoming an advocate and a voice for change. Just be honest about situations. Be given of your time. I know that we are all working extra, but we have to give back to our community because someone poured into us, we have to pour into other people without any expectation of a return from that person you're pouring into, right? So even if it's just one person, I don't care how many Take somebody under your wing, sponsor them, mentor them, and make sure that they have the knowledge and the information that we didn't have when we were growing up and help them to stay straight, right, online. So, you know, Ricky, you know this, you you mentor so many people, I mentor so many people. Sometimes people hit us up, we don't even know who they are. But because they are a Black sister in a corporation and they, they've had the guts to hit me up and say, I need to talk to you about something, I'm going to give them that that time and impart whatever wisdom I can. So I just encourage everyone to do that for other people because giving back is something that really soothes my soul and I hope it soothes other people's soul. And whatever giving back looks like to you, it could be with your voluntary organization, whatever. So that's one thing. The second thing is really we're dealing with a lot and we tend to shove it down and postpone it. And I always say you can't really schedule your breakdown. You can't schedule that. People will say, oh, I'm going to take a break after I do all these 50,000 things. And I'm like, well, we can't do that. We've got to look after ourselves first. So do what you need to do to exercise self-care on a weekly, on a daily basis, whether it's one small thing a day and one big thing a week, make sure you're doing something that really supports you emotionally and physically. And that I would seriously recommend I don't care who you are, how good you think you are, and that you don't need help. Everyone needs talk therapy. And I recommend that everybody invest in therapy, particularly if you have insurance, there's no excuse. Get therapy like a gym membership. You would have that and go to get a membership with your therapist. Sit down and talk about stuff with your therapist because that is invaluable. People don't like to talk about that, but that is so invaluable. And even if you think you're good, keep that up on a weekly, bi-weekly basis. And then thirdly, I think for me, the secret, the biggest secret is when we talk about advancing in our careers and advancing for our lives and what does success looks like, for me, the biggest secret isn't get a sponsor, work hard, get a mentor, get your resume ready, do the networking. Those external things are a must 
and almost like a foundation in what you have to do to get on. But the differentiator is really aligning with your path and purpose spiritually. What is your purpose? Why are you here? Because when you're on path and purpose, the universe opens doors for you that you have no control over. I bet if you think about times in your life when stuff has happened and you're like, how did that orchestrate? Because, you know, I had no control over that. And that was like a miracle that that happened for me to do whatever it is that you're supposed to. That's because that's your path and purpose. And when you're not on path and purpose, like you're going for that job and you've got all the references in the world and you've checked checked every box and some and you know you're right for the job and you don't get it. It's because it's not your path and your purpose. It just means you're there to do something else. And I think when people recognize that, when they recognize that, okay, this is too hard. I'm banging my head against a brick wall. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Surrender. Surrender to the universe and be open to whatever that possibility is next. Be open to what it looks like. It can look completely different to what you envision it to be. But just be open and be present. Because that, what you're supposed to be doing, could be right in front of you. And for me, that's the biggest secret, because that makes the difference between being successful and being successful in an easy, like, painless way, right? It doesn't have to be hard. And you've seen, I'm sure you two see people that are floating in life. They're floating because they're on path of purpose. So they just, they're just elated, because they figured it out. And I just encourage everyone to invest the amount of time it takes to figure out why you're on this earth, man? Boy, man. <laughs> I mean, you know when you at a concert, man, and the shit is cracking. They tell you to like light a lighter, <laughs> or now they tell you to show yourself <laughs> on light. Man, I'm over here doing that, boy. Woo! I am pumped right now. I am, I am pumped. Okay, Sylvia, like, geez, I love and appreciate the simplicity of the secrets that you shared with us. As many accomplishments that you've already achieved, I feel like we have not even seen the best of Dr. Sylvia Bartley yet. Like, no, I mean, you haven't, you know, you have not. Like, yeah, years are yet to come. Yeah, we're talking about path and purpose here. So, so what's next for you, and how can our listeners connect with you outside of this Secrets podcast? Well, what's next for me? I'm really thinking about you know just taking it up a notch, really aligning with what I'm supposed to do, follow my passion, follow my heart. And take a big leap forward in faith. Just taking a big leap forward in faith and trusting the universe has got my back and has my safety net. So I'll be doing, there's a lot of changes coming up in the the next couple of weeks for me. But you can find me. I have a website, sylvia-bartley.com. You can go to that website there. You can see the book. You can see my podcast. I also upload some resources because the people I have on my podcast, I like to promote the work that they're doing. So I pull up their websites, phenomenal, phenomenal people. And you too, we've got to get you on there very soon right. to my uh, podcast because I need to turn this table back around <laughs> <laughs> and do what I do. <laughs> I'm looking awesome. forward to that. So uh, that's where you can find me. And that's where you probably see all, all of my updates, but there'll be a lot of changes coming up. And I'm so excited about the possibilities because even though these changes are drastic in my heart and my guts. I know is what I was supposed to do in order for me to propel into the next phase of my life, which is going to be my best years. Great. Uh, great. Uh, it was such amazing advice. And again, the science that yeah. you brought to the conversation today was like spectacular, spectacular. And I know, and we know that many of us are not taught how to deal with mental health issues. And so really appreciate you giving that sage advice around talk therapy and other, other ways of just dealing with your mental health. And thank you for writing the book, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, turn the tide, because I think that'll be a valuable resource for a lot of people in terms of finding their journey, their spiritual journey as well. We sincerely appreciate you just being with us today, right? And again, you can find Sylvia's book on her website that she just mentioned, or you can find it on Amazon as well. 
And again, we'll we'll uh, include information in our show notes on how to uh, how to get in touch with Sylvia. So again, thanks for being a day one with us in terms of being a day one listener and for being on the show with us today, Sylvia. We appreciate it. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And I talked about stuff that I've never talked about before. So you got some original stuff from me. <laughs> I think it might be this truth serum in these cups. I think it might be this truth serum in these cups. That help us. But look, again, you can find more resources on the secrets and the receipts we shared today by going to our website, secrets.com and looking in the show notes, you know, for this episode. I know we we got some real good stuff for Janelle to yeah, get together for absolutely. us, to organize for us today. So Look, I mean, Sylvia, I would also like to thank you for being on Secrets today. We really, really sincerely appreciate you being a loyal supporter of Secrets and everything that we do. And more importantly, we want to do our part to support you in your efforts with being able to get your book out there to everyone. And also for everybody to tune in to and to, to get on your podcast. I mean, look. She's not lying. She got some hot fire ass guests, mm-hmm. you know, on there. And I think I see some type of a marriage in the future here between <laughs> with this tour that we're playing and this secrets right, tour right. where we're going to probably have our sister, you know, being able to do this with us as well. I also want to give a humble, very humble shout out to all of our listeners and fans out there because you all continue just to show us how important Secrets is to you as we're now over 20,000 episodes downloaded. 20,000. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations, guys. And lastly, be sure to write a review on Apple or buy some of that merchandise. I know we ask y'all to do this every week. (laughs) I understand, but believe me, it really does make a difference with us getting noticed. So take a picture with you in your gear and post it on our LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter pages and tag us. Yeah. Yeah, and please do. And again, we have fun on the podcast, but this is all about helping y'all get that dollar dollar bill at the end of the day. Yep. And so far, we want to add to the more than three million in total comp increases we've already gotten for people in the Secrets Village since we launched. We're trying to get to 50, trying yeah. to get to 50. Then we can shut this thing yeah. down. <laughs> Burn it to the ground. Burn it to the ground. So check us out. Check out our coaching services. If you need us to come to your company or whatever to do training, we're happy to do that as well. And again, we want to thank our sister, Dr. Sylvia Bartley, again, for just sharing her story with us on how she found the strength to fight for her own mental health and well-being, while also being a very loud advocate and a voice for change in the fight for equity. I mean, this sister goes hard, Mm -hmm. okay? She has me so fired up right now. I'm about to fill up this doggone empty-ass cup of mine (laughs) with more libations, okay, with more libations, and I'm about to get this game soaked up. So until the next time, everyone, Thanks so much for listening to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed yet another gem from KP and PR. In fact, one listener said that Secrets continues to share the inside story on how to truly accomplish your corporate ambitions. And we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, donate via Patreon, and sign up for our executive coaching services. Check us out at www.c-crets.com to get more information about our secret services. Remember, when they share, you transform. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.